As the day arrived for serial killer Pedro Lopez to enter prison, it seemed as though his reign of terror was finally over. He had raped and murdered over 300 young girls, leaving a trail of devastation in his wake. However, justice was not to be served, as one day, Lopez disappeared without a trace. In the late 1970s, indigenous children across Andean communities began disappearing at an alarming rate. Their families turned to authorities, who dismissed their concerns, suggesting the children had simply run away due to poor performance in school. Fears grew that the girls had been trafficked for prostitution or slavery, and many believed that the police were unwilling to act due to their connections with traffickers. The trust that once existed in these communities began to fade, as anguished parents faced accusations of not watching their children closely enough. It was still unclear what the truth was, that there was a monster prowling the rugged mountainous terrain, taking advantage of the trusting nature of children during that time. He didn't use violent means or attract attention to himself. Usually he used presents, money, or even a crooked smile to gain the girl's trust, having watched some of them for days or weeks before capturing his prey. Pedro Lopez was born behind the backdrop of Colombia's civil war, often referred to as la violencia, meaning the violence, due to the brutal methods of torture used at the time such as dismembering, beheading, and maiming. War broke out after Liberal Party leader Jorge Alessia Gatán was assassinated in Bogotá. At the time, he was the favorite to win the country's 1950 election. If he'd won, he would have ousted the Conservative Party candidate, changing the country's government from conservative to liberal. After his assassination, angry liberal mobs took to the streets and headed to the presidential palace with the intent of killing the president. Rioting occurred throughout the country and the police and military, who had remained largely neutral before, defected or aligned with the conservative government. Lopez's father, Medardo Reyes, was murdered at a local grocery store when an opposing mob ambushed him. Benilda, his mother, was pregnant at the time with him and feared her distress would kill him while he was still in the womb. He was born on October 8, 1948, in Santa Isabel, Colombia, and was the seventh of 13 children. At the time of his birth, Colombia had the highest murder rate in the world. Most of the fighting happened in the countryside, in places like Santa Isabel, where he spent his early years. Benilda eventually moved to another town, El Espinal, where she would be able to make more money. Lopez repeatedly showed himself as an unreliable narrator, and many of the timelines and stories about his life, particularly his childhood, are inconsistent. During interviews, Benilda described her son as a polite and loving child who wanted to be a teacher and said she raised him in a loving environment and encouraged him to follow his dreams. Pedro's account was different. He claimed his mother was physically abusive to him and his siblings. 
she was a sex worker and a supposed stream of men frequented their home to see her. Pedro would see those men attacking her, either over pricing or simply because they knew they could. By the time he was eight years old, Pedro was living on the streets, and two possible scenarios have been brought to light to explain why. Benilda claimed he ran away, breaking her heart and leaving her convinced he was abducted or murdered by the same people that killed his father. She was so devastated that she visited a psychic to see if she could make contact with him. In Lopez's recollections, he molested his little sister and his mother kicked him out. He even admitted to groping his sister and propositioning her for sex. When his mother found out, she banished him from the family home and told him never to return. He blamed her, claiming it was her poor influence as a sex worker that made him do it. While on the streets, a concerned man approached him and offered him a warm bed. Pedro followed him, but the stranger never took him home. Instead, he lured young Pedro into an abandoned building. Inside that hidden area, the stranger sexually assaulted him and sent him back to the streets. Like many other children in his situation, the police wouldn't have listened to him even if he had reported the incident. After it happened, Pedro began to hide away during the day, only to scurry out at night to scour the landfills and garbage for food. He moved to Bogota, the nation's capital, and became one of the thousands of Gamines. Pedro joined a street gang where members protected each other. Together, they committed petty crimes and smoked bazooka, a form of cocaine mixed with brick dust and chalk. The substance had a paste-like consistency and was far more potent than other forms of cocaine. It acted as a stimulant that increased energy, alertness, confidence and talkativeness. And it didn't take long before Pedro was addicted. Violence was routine for children on the street, especially when searching for safe places to sleep. They didn't trust anyone outside their group and often fought rival gangs. They survived by stealing, escaping, and begging, wearing old rags to get people's sympathy. But their torn clothing was no match for the cold Colombian nights. When an American couple encountered an emaciated young Pedro living in his own filth, they had to do something to help. They provided him with a home and enrolled him in an orphan school hoping he'd make friends there and feel he had something in common with the other children. But the stability of this new life didn't provide respite. He ran away. His reasoning has never been fully clarified. Either he was molested at the school and ran away in response to it, or he fled with a teacher who he was in a relationship with. Either way, he was back on the streets. He supported himself this time by robbing cars and selling them to local chop shops. Police arrested him for stealing at 18 years old and he served seven years in prison. 
It was during his sentence he committed his first known killings, which were nothing like his later ones. At least two inmates sexually assaulted him, and in response he turned a kitchen utensil into a knife-like weapon and slit each of his attackers' throats. Authorities ruled the killings as self-defense. Inmates now feared him and left him alone for the rest of his time in prison, and he did not have extra time added to his sentence. However, while he was there, his fantasies were growing darker. They were festering. He had a sexual appetite he needed to satiate, but women didn't sexually attract him. In fact, they made him nauseous, reminding him of what he witnessed his mother go through. In 1978, when he was released, he moved to Peru, going to an area southeast of Lima situated in the Andes on a sunny valley with rugged terrain. It was there he became enamored with Andean girls, who he found to be innocent and trusting. Soon he was prowling the area seeking his prey. Girls were vanishing in noticeable numbers. They appeared to disappear without a trace, an obvious indicator that Lopez was nearby. Parents and community members demanded answers. And when Lopez tried to lure a nine-year-old away from a local tribe, he was finally caught. They were confident he was behind the missing girls in the region and planned on making him pay. They stripped him naked, tortured him, dug a deep pit in the sand and threw him inside. After burying Pedro up to his neck, they poured syrup all over to attract bullet ants. It was at that point when an American missionary came across the scene and felt it was her duty to intercede. She convinced them not to kill Pedro, preaching they find different means of resolution. Eventually, they let her take him as long as she turned him in to authorities. She loaded him in her Jeep and drove away. It's unclear if she ever took him to the police. Either she did, she drove him to a police outpost, but they dismissed her claims and let him go free, or she just took him to the Colombian border and left him there. Aware he couldn't return to the same area, he set his sights on Ecuador, the place where he believed girls didn't fear strangers like they did in Colombia or Peru, but Ecuador would be the place where he was finally caught. A similar pattern emerged in the towns that he was occupying. Girls were going to school, work, running errands, playing outside, and one minute they would be there and the next they'd be gone. Ecuadorians at the time though felt the police were only available to the wealthy. They dismissed their concerns about their children's safety. That was until Lopez set his sights on the daughter of a local businessman in a town called Embato. Even Nova Hakome almost always visited her father Carlos Hakome's office during the day to bring him something to eat. He owned a bakery in the town and was a well-respected businessman. One day she didn't turn up. He contacted the police and the news of the missing girl was soon broadcast across the country. Unfortunately though, it was too late. Police recovered Ivanova's body in a farm near town. It was clear that a killer was on the loose. The only question was, when would he strike again? Umbato's Plaza Bina 
interspersed with activities in the mornings. Even in the days following Ivanova's murder, although people were obviously more suspicious of one another and on edge. A strange man was in the market selling trinkets. He set up a small stand and went undetected for a while until he decided to walk the stalls where he passed fruit and vegetable vendors setting up for the day. Paulina Ramon was working her stall with the help of her 11-year-old daughter, Alicia. While Paulina prepared the day's meals, the man approached Alicia giving her a strange look and gesturing for her to come over to him. However, she refused and told her mother instead. This was the catalyst for chaos to break out in the market. Paulina called upon the vendors and customers, declaring they'd found their monster. Townspeople flocked towards him and pinned Lopez to the ground while they waited for police. Lopez entered police custody, where interrogators tried to strong-arm him into giving them information. However, the more forcefully they questioned, the less responsive he became. It took hours before he opened up to Pastor Cordova, the police captain at the time and somebody that Lopez would become very close with. The problem was that once he started talking, he wouldn't stop. While he informed authorities of his acts against these young girls, he realized how much attention they were willing to give him and relished in it. He enjoyed discussing what he'd done and spent a lot of time philosophizing about life and death on camera. In one interview, he spoke of death as this seductive process where a person loses their emotions and senses and becomes enveloped in darkness, where everything you did to them falls into too. Authorities needed him to lead them to where he buried the bodies, taking them on a grim tour of 11 Ecuadorian provinces. They had to dress him like a police officer because if he was recognized, he would probably be murdered himself. They went to the outskirts of Mbato, to the Ficoa Bridge where he took Hortensia Garces Lozada, who he killed 10 months before. He approached Hortensia while she was selling newspapers. She was making money for the family as her mother was pregnant. Lopez claimed to be a tourist and offered her money to show him around. When they were out of sight, he sexually assaulted and strangled her, then left her body buried in the newspapers she had been selling. Her family identified her only by her clothing, as months of lying in the rough terrain had reduced her body to a decomposed skeleton. With all the horrendous details that Lopez was revealing, police knew they had to control themselves around him and keep him talking until they had all the information they needed. However, that process was almost too much to bear. He enjoyed the tour. The officers he was with would give him tobacco, feed him, and did everything in their power to make him comfortable. He felt so close to Pastor Cordova, he began to call him Papa. Lopez displayed a sense of satisfaction when he showed them the bodies. Recalling details from where he found the girls, the dates and times he took them, what they looked like and what he did to them. He called them his dolls and after assaulting and murdering them when they were alive, he would return to their grave sites to have tea parties with them. 
Lopez was showing them one of the many bodies of one of his victims in Salcido, Ecuador, when he saw a photo opportunity, as by this point he basically saw himself as a celebrity. He lifted the skull of one of his victims and placed it under his arm. This was when the group knew that things had gone way too far. Pastor Cordova snatched the skull from him and returned it to its shallow grave in disgust, unwilling to let him have his moment. By the time he finished his tour around Ecuador, Pedro had shown authorities 57 bodies and confessed to each one. They charged him with 110 counts of murder, although he committed 200 more. It was at this time that it became clear that the decision to go to Ecuador was far deeper than just being lured by the trusting nature of the children there. He knew the law was on his side in the country. In Ecuador, a killer at the time would only receive one sentence for murder, no matter how many they committed. It was because of this that victims' families feared justice wouldn't be served. Having declared himself guilty, he agreed to be interviewed by a local reporter. Throughout the interview, he tried to explain himself, blaming his actions on the abuse he endured as a child. He claimed to have eliminated people who were insignificant and took their innocence as he lost his too. He seemed to think he'd done them a favor by saving them from poverty. Another thing that he brought up in the interview was asking the reporter if he would be remembered. Following it unironically with stating that he was too young to die. At some point while he was in custody, he began to blame an alternative personality called Jorge Patino. With Pedro Lopez claiming that he was just the vessel for the murders and that if he didn't act, Jorge would have killed him. His psychological evaluation revealed something different. He was a sociopath that didn't know right from wrong and was incapable of feeling remorse. This was clearly demonstrated. When he strangled the girls, he didn't feel anything. His biggest concern the whole time was not getting caught. Pedro's sentence was 16 years, amounting to only four months for every girl. Citizens were disgusted with how the case was handled, believing it should have been treated as a special case. In prison, he spent his time in a section specifically for rapists and murderers. He spent his days smoking basuco, writing in his diaries, and would carve coins with Jesus on one side and the devil on the other. After all, all he had to do was be patient aware that he'd be released before he turned 50. On August 13th, 1994, he actually left prison early for good behavior, having only served a 14-year sentence. He was 45 years old. Many of the parents of the victims openly spoke about how they wished they'd taken the law into their own hands. They clearly wanted him dead, one of the mothers said that she wanted to break him into pieces and one of the fathers gathered his friends to help him gather wood so that they could burn Lopez alive. An hour after his release though, Ecuadorian migration handed him over to Colombian authorities to begin deportation proceedings. 
the Colombian National Security Department would not let him roam free. Colombian prosecutors planned on taking advantage of the country's harsher laws and prison sentences, with the agenda to lock him away forever. Pedro had traveled to El Espinal decades before, and another girl went missing a month into his time there. Her body turned up in a rural area, and her mother identified the child based on her clothing. It had all the makings of a Pedro Lopez killing. Colombian authorities had enough evidence for a conviction and wanted him dead, but he found a loophole once again. A psychiatrist deemed him insane and admitted him to a psychological facility. After his hospitalization, another psychiatrist said that he actually was sane. Many suspected he'd faked the entire thing. Either way, his bail was $50, and once he paid it, he was released under two conditions. One, that he continue his psychiatric treatment, and two, that he visit a judge once a month. Lopez's scouting methods were not random. He purposefully targeted Andean girls, and even admitted in an interview that he once considered luring a blonde girl away from a local market. The girl was clearly a tourist, and her parents didn't leave her side the entire time. He seemed to take that as a sign, and that it would have attracted too much attention to abduct a tourist. There were many factors beyond the prison system that he exploited. It was much easier for him to target girls that weren't scared of him. In many of the communities that he went to, there were strong bonds of trust and solidarity, which made it more likely for children to trust strangers who appeared friendly or non-threatening. Poverty and vulnerability also played a role, as he admitted in the interview. It was easy to lure these children away with gifts, food, or the promise of a better life. It would be remiss to not mention that Lopez was a master manipulator. He pretended to be a person of authority or someone that could help them, making it easier for him to gain the trust of vulnerable individuals. But what made this man capable of such evil? We've already discussed his youth. It's undeniable he experienced neglect, abuse, and violence. While childhood trauma alone doesn't indicate a person will become a serial killer, it's often cited as a factor in the early life of a person that becomes one. Lopez experienced sexual abuse on several occasions, shaping his attitudes, behaviors, and perspective on life, particularly the way that he saw women. And on that token, he also had a poor relationship with his mother and never showed her any respect. After his release from prison, he visited Benilda, who he hadn't seen for decades. When he walked through the door, he demanded she kneel and bless him, but she insisted that as his mother, it should be the other way. He resentfully got down on one knee. Lopez wasn't there to reunite. He wanted his inheritance but all she had to her name at that point was a bed and a chair. She was older and far less mobile than before, but he didn't care. He took the two items of furniture and put them outside to sell. She asked what he would do if nobody bought them, and his answer was that he would set them on fire. Fortunately or unfortunately, it never came to that. Passers-by bought both pieces. Lopez took the money and left. It would be the last time anyone would see him alive. There are many theories about what happened next. 
Some people think that citizens took matters into their own hands and killed him while authorities turned a blind eye. And others suspected that he took his own life. Or he could still be scaling the rugged terrain of the Andes, scouring schools and people's houses, waiting for the moment when a little girl makes eye contact with him. Twenty years after his release, Ecuador changed the murder sentence to 25 years. Interpol is still looking for Pedro and believes that he has committed at least one murder since in Colombia. The 2006 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records credited him as the most prolific serial killer, but quickly removed the listing after complaints that it turned murder into a competition. The total number of people he has killed is unknown. Thank you.